This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. We're wanting to save 250 preborn babies this January by offering free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. You can help by calling 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Well, it's not every day that a Christian apologist joins forces with an atheist professor to go on a campus tour, but that is what is going to happen beginning just a few days from now at four Utah universities. Dr. Corey Miller, president and CEO of Ratio Christi, and Dr. Peter Bogosian, a philosophy professor at Portland State University, will actually be working together to try to combat the death of intellectual diversity on college campuses. And we're going to find out more about it now from Rashio Christie CEO, Corey Miller. Corey, great to have you back. How are you doing? Hey, Janet. It's been a while. I'm so glad to be back. We're well, doing great. Thank oh, you. that's great. Well, it is always nice to have you here. So you have to first answer for me the obvious, which is you're hanging with an atheist professor. How did this come about? And it's the most odd atheist professor in relation to me because his, his book, A Manual for Creating Atheists, when you read some of the chapters in there, they seem like, uh, especially Faith in the Academy, they seem like his mission is what our mission is, but to win people, uh, as he says, through reason to atheism to the other side and, wow. and get rid of the virus of faith. Uh, but, you know, I, I started to watch what was happening with him in his life and how, even though he claims to be a leftist atheist, how he's being targeted by the new left, the uber-left, which is really not liberal, it's illiberal, it stifles free speech, it silences those who do not uh, jump on board with the politically correct beliefs on X, Y, or Z. And many of the neo-atheists that we can think of, like Richard Dawkins and others, are starting to notice this. And so you're seeing a realignment of people who appreciate free speech, free thought on campuses, and see this as a threat to civilization. Right. So he and I connected. He invited me to lecture in his atheism seminar at Portland State University. I lectured to his students for two hours, and then he and I had lunch after, and we started sort of vision casting about how we might partner together on some of these common issues, despite our very big differences. Wow. Well, that's a great opportunity for you as well and for him to hear the gospel. And that's fantastic. I, I actually think that's a great opportunity. But, you yes. know, sharing the same concerns is such an important thing because people have seen all of these news headlines about what's going on on college campuses. There's all this social justice, critical theory, identity politics, shutting down free speech, you know, screaming and yelling at conservative speakers who show up on certain college campuses and throw things and causing all sorts of chaos. How do you think this has come about? I mean, what are your reflections on how we got here, even when you go back to Berkeley and that was the birthplace of the free speech movement, and now that's the place where you get conservative speakers shouted down before they even have a chance to speak? Right, right. Well, I I wrote an article a little while back uh, for the Christian Research Journal on how we lost the universities and how to regain them. There's a long story, but I think everybody knows that 
virtually all of the U.S. universities, 100 years before we were even a country, beginning with Harvard and Princeton and Yale and Columbia, they were all Christian, and not just Christian, but Protestant. Up until 1840, 80% of the university presidents across the nation were also members of the clergy. 1890, chapel attendance and church attendance were required for every college in the country. Hmm. It wasn't that long ago. Right. But between 1880 and 1930, a battle ensued. Uh, naturalism had crept in, uh, scientific naturalism, along with biblical criticism uh, from uh, Europe and People would go study over there, they'd come back, they would be infiltrating into the universities, and eventually uh, they won. And by 1930, it was a matter of mopping up and cleaning up. Well, at the time, things were happening also in Europe. Uh, The Nazis came to power in 1930s, and at that time, the neo-Marxist or the cultural Marxist movement had begun in retooling and rethinking how to use critical theory from the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory. The term political correctness was part of the the Red Army's, you know, term. Sir, is this statement true? Does it matter if it's true? It's politically true. It's politically correct. Uh, The notion of social justice started coming up through sociological studies and so forth. Well, most of these founders of, of this cultural Marxism, this neo-Marxism, this critical theory uh, that we now identify as identity politics and political correctness in the popular jargon, a lot of that stuff, uh, the founders were, most of them were Jewish, and they were global socialists. Well, they weren't national socialists. And as we know, Stalin and Hitler did not get along well. And so when the Nazis, the national socialists, came to power, the global socialists had to get out of town quick, and where did they go? Uh, they, they stopped off one place, but then they came to the U.S., they embedded in Columbia University, then Yale, the Ivy Leagues, started this long, drawn-out process of, on how to infiltrate culture that is akin to neo-Marxism through education and through religion. And they wrote a bunch of influential books just in time for the 1960s revolution. That's when the new left began. And now, you know, 30 years later, this new left are at their apex. They're at the top of their departments and uh, the administrative presidents and things like that. And it's all of this stuff that we see that is a division between classes, uh, sex, race, gender, economic class, and so forth. And they see people as victims or victimizers, yep. uh, bourgeois, proletariat, as yep. oppressors or oppressed. And so these neo-Marxists with critical theory and what we now call social justice and identity politics and so forth, they had to get out of Europe and they went over to America. They embedded in Columbia University and Yale and uh, in the Ivy League schools. Uh, long story short, they wrote a bunch of influential articles and books that were really at their peak right at the time for the 1960s social and sexual revolutions taking place. (laughs) And, you know, neo-Marxism really sees the class division as a place to focus, to divide people between victims and victimizers, oppressors and oppressed, bourgeoisie and proletariat, along the lines of sex, race, class, gender, etc., and that's what uh, began to happen. And at the time in the 1990s, the ratio of, of left to right professors was just about 2.2 to 1, maybe 2.3 to 1. Well, 
there's been this huge grade since then, just over the last 25 years, as masses of professors in the baby boom generation have been retiring. And most of those have been uh, replaced by the new left, by the social justice, by identity politics, by uh, critical theory, and so forth. Right. And the ratio now is, has climbed to the extent where it's 12 to 1 for those who are retiring, 65 and older, and it's 23 to 1 across the country otherwise. In New England, it's 28 to 1. In religious studies, it's 70 to 1. Oh, my. And what some of the neo-atheists, who mostly are in the hard sciences, if you think about who they are, like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett, well, they're all old white males, and they don't quite fit the narrative of identity politics. True. Um, and so the humanities, Frankenstein, which emerged uh, from that soil of naturalism, um, all of a sudden it, it, there was room for this thing to grow, and now it seems to be unstoppable. And so you're finding even some of those that were in the neo-atheist area being very concerned about this, because... At least those people believed that truth is real. You can know it. It's only scientific truth, of course, they mm -hmm. thought. And they were willing to have debates um, and so forth. This new group, there's no debating anything. You silence your opposition. You shame your opposition. Or in some cases, you just destroy the career of your opposition. It's very Marxist very Stalinist. Exactly. The cancel culture. We've seen it happen over and over again, and it seems just to be growing as, as time goes along, Corey. And this is, I think, such a good time for you to be able to go with Professor Peter Bogosian into these Utah universities and have some of these events. I want to hear more about it. We do need to pause for a short break. We'll come back with Corey Miller, President and CEO of Rocio Christie. Stay with us. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. How much is one life worth? Most of us would say life is priceless, and we'd be right. After all, what is the value of someone created in the image of God? That's why during this Sanctity of Human Life Month, we're asking Janet Meffer Today listeners, just like you, to help us save 250 babies through the ministry of preborn. How does preborn save babies? Through ultrasounds. Preborn works with hundreds of pro life pregnancy centers across America, providing free ultrasounds for women in crisis pregnancies. And 80% of the time, when a mother sees her little baby on an ultrasound, she'll choose life. It's that easy. That's why right now, and especially this month, as we ramp up our efforts to stand for life, we need your help to support the vital work of preborn in saving human lives. For your gift of $28, you can provide a free ultrasound to a mom in a crisis pregnancy. And for a gift of $140, you can provide five ultrasounds to five mothers. All you have to do is call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. 
9, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Through the work of preborn, the lives of more than 73,000 preborn babies have been saved because of ultrasound, and 28,000 women have ended up trusting in Christ as their Lord and Savior. Just think of the impact you can have on not just a baby, but that baby's mother and all the generations of their family to come. So please, if you can, help us save 250 babies this month from abortion. They need you. Again, $28 provides a free ultrasound to a mom in a crisis pregnancy. And for $140, you can provide five ultrasounds to five moms. Just call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or online at JanetMefford.com. Thank you for saving a baby's life. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Well, I am really excited about what's going to be coming up in the next few days. Dr. Corey Miller, who is president and CEO of Ratio Christi, and Dr. Peter Bogosian, who is a philosophy professor at Portland State University and, by the way, an atheist, are going to be joining forces and working together to try to combat the death of intellectual diversity on college campuses. Corey, you had given just a fantastic summary of what has gone wrong at American college campuses. And, of course, this is what you guys are dealing with all the time at your university chapters of Ratio Christi, where you're trying to do a Christian apologetics. And has that lack of intellectual diversity become a unique challenge among Christian students who are trying to just, first of all, establish there is such a thing as objective truth? Yes, because now it's infiltrated highly into the administrative ranks of the university, so that uh, you have to now justify what you're doing or your existence through a prism of identity politics. Mm. So if, if our doctrinal statement as a, as a club to even get approved on campus doesn't satisfy that, then you're stuck off campus. And we've had to litigate. Uh, we've won federal victories. We're 17 of 17 because, you know, we have the U.S. Constitution, which trumps when it comes to free speech, uh, the university laws. And so... Uh, nonetheless, we're facing this stuff. But even when we get on campus and we have debates uh, at UNC Wilmington, for example, we were going to have a debate on abortion. We had two opponents set up, ready to go, but they weren't going to let us do it. Why? Because we had two males. And what do males have to contribute to the abortion debate? Oh. It has to be a female. Please. Well, finally, we told them, well, one of them is African-American. And they said, oh, well, maybe it's legitimate. And then we said, and that one also is an abortion doctor who claims to abort babies as an act of worship to the glory of God. And they said, oh, well, this will be a fine debate then. Oh, my. (laughs) Unbelievable. Yeah, so we're finding this stuff happening all the time. It's just getting progressively, if I can use that term, no pun intended, (laughs) or maybe there is, uh, progressively worse and worse and very quickly. And it's infiltrating, Janet, campus ministries, seminaries, churches and so forth, this, this new idea, this term called social justice, uh, which is a Trojan horse, comes along with some good, but there's more inside of that horse than meets the eye. You're totally right about that. Yeah, and you were asking, just as an aside, you were asking, what do men have to do with babies and abortion? Well, if there were no men, there'd be no babies. So I think you get just as much of a say as women do. Right. I think that that's a right. good starting point. Well, tell us a little bit about what you and Professor Bogosian will be doing. I know you're going to four different campuses in Utah. Did you pick Utah for any particular reason? And, and what is the plan for your events? 
Well, my background is Utah. Um, I wrote a book called Leaving Mormonism, Why Four Scholars Changed Their Minds. Joseph Smith's bodyguard was one of my ancestors. And that's how I ended up getting into philosophy and comparative religions and apologetics. So I, I've kind of got a, you know, an inclination, a passion for Utah. Yeah. We've recently been planting some chapters in Utah uh, for Ratio Christi, and, and uh, we've had one of our key staff also move out there. A former lead pastor from there recently just became our regional director, and we just thought it would be a good place to uh, launch this. We had some interest there. And uh, Bogosian and I had just begun this conversation, and so we set it up for the University of Utah, Utah State, Weber State, and Utah Valley University, two days, four different meetings. And our hope is that from our distinct perspectives, we can um, address this issue. You know, both of us have, we, we both originally lost our first PhD attempt. We've both been uh, attacked in our uh, faculty roles as philosophy professors, um, and despite our vast differences as a Christian and atheist, we are both really seeing this big threat to the universities. And so we'll give presentations from our respective, you know, experiences from atheism and from uh, Christianity and what's happening to concern us in the Christian world and for him in the atheist world. Why is this such an important topic? Why would it bring almost metaphysical foes on the ideological <laughs> battlefield like, like us? What would bring us together? Yeah. And so that's what we're going to focus on, um, how social justice and identity politics are negatively impacting the culture in the university. It's not just free speech. It's free thought itself. It's cognitive liberty. You can't even hide in your closet anymore because they're coming. Yeah. And we need to address this. And we need to unite on some of these fundamental bedrocks of civilization for the West. Yeah, for sure. You know, it seems to me it's also a really good opportunity for you in particular, and I'll tell you why. It's because when we look at the founding principles of the United States, we all acknowledge that even though we can't say the United States was formed as a specifically Christian nation for every person who lived here, without the foundation of the Bible, there couldn't have been a United States. And this entire idea of inalienable rights that we have in our Declaration of Independence and and this understanding that we have rights that God gave to to us. I wonder if you see this at all as a unique time in history to reassert without God, without his word, we would not even understand the importance of the rights that we have under him to things like freedom of speech and freedom of religion. In other words, tying these concepts explicitly to Christianity as an apologetic argument. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, uh, part of this is what I lectured on in his class up at Portland State. And when it comes time in our dialogue and the moderator questions to even, you know, rebut each other on our differences, I think that our worldview uh, better accounts for these virtues that we look at as freedoms in the West. Yeah. Because, as you say, you know, the inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and being endowed by our Creator, well, that has its roots not in government or in man, but in the Torah, uh, in the Bible, right. created in God's image. And so what we call human rights, like the, the, you know, the Human Rights Declaration uh, that happened, you know, 70 years ago, well, human rights was a notion that was scrubbed. It was secularized by the French, 
But before that, it was called Natural Rights by Mm -hmm. John Locke, who influenced our founding fathers. And natural rights, of course, came from natural law, from Augustine, from Thomas Aquinas. And natural law came from divine law, uh, revealed law. So, yes, uh, the whole notion of respecting an opponent and looking at them in the eye as though all lives, including theirs, matter as much as mine and that we ought to, even though we disagree with what they might say, we will go to the death for their right to say it. That stuff is far better grounded in a Christian worldview than in an atheist one. But if we can get atheists to come alongside and see the virtue, the practical virtue of having free speech and free thought and and diversity of uh, thinking on the campuses, I'll take it. Because really, practically speaking, you can really convince people that uh, intellectual diversity is better than just having a monolith, an echo chamber, without competing uh, ideas. Uh, it, in, you know, it, it really encourages intellectual laziness and groupthink, and it's just bad for the whole education system. It is, and I'm wondering if you are finding at any of your college campuses where you guys have a presence any hope among the students who are now coming in, kind of a step down from the millennials, now we're on Generation Z, who are wanting that kind of debate? Or do you see them as even worse, maybe, than the millennials were in terms of the group think and being steeped in all of this nonsense that the Frankfurt School has wrought? Hmm. Yes, uh, it's unfortunate, but it's worse. Um, the millennials, they're gone. Some would say in more ways than one, <laughs> but yeah. they're, they're not in the universities anymore unless they're in you know, grad programs or something like that. Age-wise, we're now dealing with Generation Z or Gen Z, as they would call it, right? right. But Gen Z uh, is a generation that is their, their most distinct characteristic is that they are post-Christian. Yes. Now, what also comes along with Gen Z is this new influence of uh, being coddled, the the coddling the American mind, Jonathan Haidt wrote in his New York Times bestseller. Um, This this, uh, weakness toward microaggressions and political correctness and free speech issues. Uh, This is more distinct now for Gen Z. It was part of the tail end of the millennials, but all this stuff that you're seeing right now, I mean, if you graduated in 2013, you didn't recognize this stuff on the universities. This is, within five years, it's ramped up to the degree that it is right now. But in a Yale 2017 national student study, this is blow your mind, 48% of students support campus speech codes. Oh. means there are certain things you cannot say. Oh. 81% say that words are a form of violence. Of course, words cause depression and depressed people commit suicide. And therefore, words are a form of violence. One-third of all these students believe that physical violence is justified to prevent hate speech. Oh, my goodness. And how do we define hate speech? Two out of three students say hate speech is anything a student believes to be considered hurtful to a particular person. Wow. That's insane. So it's not just the professors on top. We're talking about the students coming up through the system into the university right now. Uh, we're getting it from both sides, and then, of course, we're dealing with scientific naturalism in the hard sciences, which now is becoming eclipsed by what's happening in the social and sciences and humanities of this postmodern social justice stuff. Uh, it's, we've got a real project on our hands. You put it sure that way. do. And the church needs to 
coalesce together, coalition build, and realize that the universities are the most influential institution of Western civilization, and we need to come together uh, to put resources into reclaiming the voice of Christ at the universities. No doubt about it. And it's why I'm so grateful that you're there, Corey, doing what you're doing, not only with these upcoming events on February 6th and 7th, but also the work that you do on college campuses in particular, also reaching Christian kids, because we can't take for granted anymore that Christian kids coming out of evangelical backgrounds will be any less propagandized sometimes where they go to school. So you can find out more by going to ratiochristi.org if you're interested in attending these events. If you're going to be in Utah or know somebody who is, check it out, ratiochristi.org. Corey Miller with us. Always a joy. Corey, thanks so much for being here again. God bless you. Thanks a lot, Janet. All right. God bless. We'll talk to you later, and thanks for being here. We'll be back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. We're wanting to save 250 preborn babies this January by offering free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. You can help by calling 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Well, we only have 44 more preborn babies to save today. This is our wonderful partnership I've been telling you about with the great ministry Preborn. They provide ultrasound machines and pregnancy centers across the country. It's a great way to save preborn lives. These abortion-minded women come in and when they are offered a free ultrasound and they accept, and they usually accept, eight out of 10 of them will keep their babies It's such a great way to save lives. And we need your help. 44 more children to go in order to meet our goal of 250 babies saved during the Sanctity of Human Life Month. And your gift of $28 will provide one ultrasound session. A gift of $140 will sponsor five ultrasounds. Any gift will help. $100, $200, whatever you can afford, whatever's in your budget. We're grateful to have any amount of money you're able to contribute to this very worthy cause. Here's the number to call. 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Dial 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click, preborn banner at JanetMefford.com. And we thank you so much. I want to get into what turned out to be a very inspiring speech from Nigel Farage. Now, we don't normally do British political news on this show, but I think there was something so special about what happened, because today is the day that... Great Britain will leave the European Union. Now, technically, they'll be a part of it in some regard until the end of the year, but a very big day. Nigel Farage, the leader of the Brexit Party, was very, very excited. He's been fighting this battle for 20-some years, and many, many people thought it could never be done. They would always be a part of the European Union. They would always have to be connected to these globalists. And boy, it's been so interesting to see what has happened in the last several years not just in the UK with the Brexit vote and then the subsequent fight and Boris Johnson and everything kind of turning out okay, but also with the rise of Trump. There is something in the air that cannot be denied, and it's good. It is good. Is it perfect? No. Is it good? Is it good that people want to have 
populist movements, if you want to call it that, or maybe you should say it in this way. People want their sovereign nations to be sovereign. And certainly not every country being sovereign makes the country good. Uh, We know that for sure. But when we see the free West wanting to say, listen, we want our own country. We want to be able to govern our own people. We don't want to turn over control to unelected people who are going to impose globalism on us. That's always a good thing. So I want you to listen to a little bit of what Nigel Farage had to say, saying goodbye to the European Union. It was kind of interesting at the end. You'll get to hear this. But they were waving the Union Jack, and and there was kind of an interesting moment there. But let's listen first to the beginning of Nigel Farage's speech. But the most significant point is this. What happens at 11 p.m. this Friday, the 31st of January, 2020, marks the point of no return. Once we've left, we are never coming back. And the rest, frankly, is detail. We're going, we will be gone. And that should be the summit of my own political ambitions. I walked in here, as I've said before, you all thought it was terribly funny. Uh, You stopped laughing in 2016. But my view has changed of Europe since since I joined. In 2005, I saw the constitution that had been drafted by Giscard and others. I saw it rejected by the French in a referendum. I saw it rejected by the Dutch in a referendum. And I saw you in these institutions ignore them, bring it back as a Lisbon Treaty and boast you could ram it through without there being referendums. Well, the Irish did have a vote and did say no and were forced to vote again. You're very good at making people vote again but what we proved is the British are too big to bully. Thank goodness. Oh, my. Now he explains how he came to embrace Brexit and why there is no need for the European Union. This is cut to. So I became, I became an outright opponent of the entire European project. I want Brexit to start a debate across the rest of Europe. What do we want from Europe? If we want trade, friendship, cooperation, reciprocity... We don't need a European Commission. We don't need a European Court. We don't need these institutions and all of this power. And I can promise you, both in UKIP and indeed in the Brexit Party, we love Europe. We just hate the European Union. It's as simple as that. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping this begins the end of this project. It's a bad project. It isn't just undemocratic, it's anti-democratic, and it puts in that front row. It gives people power without accountability. People who cannot be held to account by the electorate. And that is an unacceptable structure. Speaking of which, can we leave the United Nations now? I know that's a subject for another day, but it just reminded me of that. Exactly. When you have people who are so far removed from you, they don't really care what you think. This was the brilliance of the American experiment. Localism, a federalism, uh, more people who were representing us, who were close to us and would have to face us and represent us, not from afar, but having to come back and see their constituents and have to be accountable to their constituents. That's why the local town halls are still brilliant and a great idea. 
because your representative in Congress will come back to his district or her district and you can go and you can stand up and perhaps get on the news when you confront your representative, not to mention your local officials, your mayor, your city councilman, what have you. This is a really important thing that you have people who are representing you who can be held accountable by people just like you. Now, here Nigel Farage talks about what is going on across the world. And this is the main point. NBC News referred to it as the triumph of nationalism over liberalism. And the way Nigel Farage put it was globalism versus populism. Pay special attention to how this cut ends. This is cut three. Indeed, there's an historic battle going on now across the West, in Europe, America and elsewhere. It is globalism against populism. And you may loathe populism, but I tell you a funny thing, it's becoming very popular. (laughs) And it has great benefits. No more financial contributions. No more European Court of Justice. No more common fisheries policy. No more being talked down to. No more being bullied. No more Guy Verhofstadt. I mean... I mean, what's not to like? I know you're going to miss us. I know you want to ban our national flags, but we're going to wave you goodbye. And we'll look forward in the future to working with you as sovereign. If you disobey the rules, you get cut off. Could we please remove the flags? Mr. Farage, could we remove the flags, please? That's all over. Finish. I'm really, please sit down, resume your seats, put your flags away, you're leaving, and take them with you if you are leaving now. Good grief. Globalists have absolutely no sense of humor. What does it matter? They're leaving the EU. They wanted to make one final statement, waving their flag. Doesn't that just kind of reveal everything you need to know about globalists? There's such a disdain for people who want to live in a sovereign nation without their interference. I just think there's so many lessons in that moment for Americans. I really do as we head into another election. And it's interesting to see over at Newsweek, Nigel Farage actually penned an article, Populism is Just Beginning, and he references in this article his support for President Trump. And there are definite connections And in so many ways, there are connections between what has happened with Brexit and what is happening in the United States. And I think in spite of all this impeachment nonsense and the insanity that's going on in the Senate and the Adam Schiff show, I just think more than ever, Americans are recognizing how important it is that America remains a free and sovereign nation. And that is not what what a lot of people on the left want for this country. They want to dismantle this country. Think of what would happen if America were dismantled. One of the people who I think has a really good shot at getting the Democratic nomination is Bernie Sanders. When we come back, I want to get into some of this latest video from Project Veritas exposing his field organizers, and it will chill you to the bone. We're going to come back on Janet Mefford today. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended. Did you miss it? 
Don't go a whole year without having a health care program. Sign up with Liberty HealthShare. As a Christian healthcare sharing ministry, Liberty HealthShare is not insurance, so you can still sign up. In fact, you can sign up any time of year, and there are no contracts. Starting as low as $199 a month, Liberty HealthShare has memberships for singles, couples, and families, so you can choose the ideal program for your situation. Plus, Liberty HealthShare has no network, so you're free to pick your own doctors, hospitals, and providers. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Go to libertyhealthshare.org JMT for more information. libertyhealthshare.org JMT. When a young woman in crisis walks into a preborn pregnancy center, she's on a journey, and the Ministry of Preborn is there to help her bring her journey to life. Her name's Journey. She is the little peanut in my stomach. I'm glad I made the decision to keep her, even though it's life-changing, but it definitely changed my life for the best. Preborn offers free ultrasounds to women in crisis at pregnancy centers nationwide because when a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound, she's more likely to choose life for her baby. In fact, 8 out of 10 women will choose life if they see their babies on ultrasound. Would you join Preborn in the cause for life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your sponsorship goes to saving babies. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Your love can save a life. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, Brexit will be officially over as of today, even though the United Kingdom will remain to some extent with the European Union through the rest of the year. But officially, they're done today. Nigel Farage gave a stellar speech and the globalists didn't like it. They didn't like him waving his union jack. And I don't think he cared. I don't think he really cared. After two decades plus of fighting to leave the European Union, the fact that he was able to finally celebrate that moment and so many in the United Kingdom were able to celebrate with him was a huge, huge thing. And, and we need to keep this in mind because when we are fighting, not for nationalism like national socialism, everybody wants to try to take any Trump supporter they can and label him a Nazi. We all know that it's so old. But here's the thing. We're going into another election season, as you know. We have some truly scary people who want to be president on the left. Truly scary. One of those being Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is in my mind, somebody who should never get anywhere near the halls of power for multiple reasons. He's a total hypocrite. He's a socialist. He's nuts. I mean, that's just my personal opinion. But, But the worst of it is that you can see what the Sanders campaign is all about by some of these videos that Project Veritas has been releasing. James O'Keefe, as you know, is the undercover journalist who's been doing a lot of exposing of media outlets like CNN, for example, and he's exposed big tech like Google. His latest project has been releasing a series of videos showing some of these field organizers for the Bernie Sanders campaign. These people are truly scary. They ought to scare you which is probably why the mainstream media is ignoring this so vociferously, because if people out there really saw what the Bernie Sanders organizers are like, they might think twice about this socialism thing. So let's listen to the first excerpt here. James O'Keefe speaking. This is cut four. 
Meet Daniel Taylor and Mason Baird, both field organizers for the Sanders campaign in South Carolina. And the next two subjects of our undercover investigation of extreme radicalism inside the Sanders campaign. I, I canvassed with someone who's like uh, uh, an anarchist, and I canvassed with someone who's you know more more of a Marxist-Leninist, and so we do it. I mean, we track um, you know radical, radical, like truly radical people to the campaign, um, but uh, that's obviously not like outward-facing sort of. I'm burning. Does he know that? Um, well, I think we're. I think the goal is just to build a, uh, you know, to build a build a coalition of people, and and a lot of those people who who, who do that kind of work are are, you know, their their politics fall well outside of the American sort of norm. So they're Marxist Leninists, they're anarchists, they're these types of folks, and um, and they have more of a mind for direct action, for engaging in politics outside of the electoral system. Oh, that's great. Politics outside the electoral system, Marxist, Leninists and anarchists who want direct action. That doesn't sound like a scary kind of revolutionary coup of any type at all. Why should anybody pay any attention to this in the mainstream media? No news here. Now, listen to this. The Project Veritas reporter, you can hear that woman speaking, baits this other organizer named Mason Baird, a Sanders uh, volunteer here, to discuss Soviet gulags. Listen to this one. Cut five. Here we think of, you know, gulags being central to Russia, to Siberia, and like lock away, you know, lock you up, throw away the key. And they were saying that is such a misconception. They're like re-education camps. Do you know anything about that? Pardon me. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because um, I think, uh, I think, at least my reading of, of kind of that Cold War era, era is that you had two massive, you know, you had these huge opposing ideologies and empires and superpowers, and when you have that much power, um, each side is going to do everything it can to control a narrative and to, and to, um, to sort of have its own truth um, to, to, to support its uh, sort of sort of power structure and things like that. And so I think that um, I think if we pay attention to to the lived experience of people in, in, in post-Soviet states and in, and in Russia and things like that, then we do find that, yeah, like a lot of the stories were told in the United States about, you know, the gulags and the persecution of the kulaks and things like that are exaggerated. Um, I think there were certainly excesses and certain, you know, of our, our, own, our own American empire has its own excesses, of course. So I think, um, you know, I, uh, I think that's, that it's probably exaggerated on our side. And maybe there's also a little bit of, um, a little bit of, over justification or excuses for the excesses uh, that, 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 that probably did occur, um, but but uh, we certainly don't have a, a, a straight perspective on that stuff here in America. You know nothing. I'm looking at this guy on the video. You probably, I don't know what year you were born, buddy, but you weren't alive long enough if you were alive at all during the Cold War to even understand anything at all about the Soviet Union. You've probably never read Russian history from an actual source. You know nothing about the Kulaks. You know nothing about Stalin. Oh, they were probably exaggerated. And you know, America's just as bad. The ignorance, the sheer ignorance of these young guys who are jumping on board this cool socialism thing. Yeah, direct action. You know what? I've been rereading Nicholas and Alexandra Fat 
fantastic book by Robert K. Massey, a classic. And I've been rereading it. I've read it several times. And it'll tell you the whole story of what happened to the czar and his family and how they were executed by the Bolsheviks. It'll tell you all about the wonderful guy, Vladimir Lenin. Oh, what a fabulous guy he was. Terrific. They were just wonderful guys there back in 1917. Do some studying. It's ridiculous. I can't even believe this is going on. Now, listen, the reporter here baits Daniel Taylor. He's another Sanders organizer. Listen to this cut. Cut six. This hasn't worked. We've tried it for three years. He's still there and it gets stronger. Well, for me personally, I have I have no problem going all in on the campaign stuff because you are planning a seat. You you need people to understand that the things that we're fighting for are things we should have had all along. But for a lot of people, it seems extreme because it never has been. You know, a lot of the social programs that we're pushing are things that other countries have had for a long time, but we've never had. Like the, the whole socialist thing four years ago was a lot more toxic than it is today. I think people are finally starting to realize and maybe it's not such a bad thing. Oh, no, it's a bad thing. It's a bad thing, which is why we continually have to be out there denouncing socialism, denouncing communism and shouting from the rafters that this new generation that's being indoctrinated on college campuses have no idea what they're embracing. Absolutely none. Spend some time with the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation and listen to some of those stories from people who live through communism, buddy. I think the bloom is going to be off the rose if you actually took the time to get educated on this. Either that or you just love evil. And I don't know you well enough or at all to determine which is which. Now, this journalist baits this Taylor guy once again. This is cut seven. You all look so, so mild-mannered, but boy, you've got fire in your belly, don't you? Well, I think, you know, we don't want to scare people off. So you kind of got to feel it out first before you get into the crazy stuff. But um, What kind of crazy stuff? Tell me. You know, we were talking about, you know, more, more extreme organizations and stuff like Antifa. You know, you're talking about the yellow vests and all that. But, you know, we're kind of keeping that, keeping that in the the back burner for right now because it's not gonna i feel like change is not gonna happen easily regardless even if bernie is elected change will not come swiftly or easily so we have to you know the connections that we're making now within the campaign and with other volunteers and at events it's very important that we retain that regardless of the outcome and you know it, it it is unfortunate that we have to make plans for extreme action, but like I said, it's, they're not going to give it to us, even if Bernie is elected. Extreme action. Now well, they don't give us the country. We're going to have to use extreme action. Uh, can we use some extreme action to put these people under scrutiny, uh, law enforcement scrutiny? Because when, when you have people talking like this, is this not incitement to violence? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not an expert on this. One more cut. This is where Baird compares Sanders' revolution to the Russian Revolution of 1917. I find this quite shocking. This is cut eight. After we abolish landlords, we don't have to, we don't have to kill them. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that's, that's my, I mean, that's my feeling. I think that's damaging to the soul. But, um, yeah. <laughs> there you go, Mike. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, there were there were plenty of excesses in 1917 that I would hope to avoid. Um, but like, admire See, it. I, 
plenty of excesses that he would hope to avoid, but he admires it. He admires the Russian Revolution of 1917. Again, you probably need to get out there and talk to some of the people who suffered through communism in the Soviet bloc. Read some history books. Read Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Read the Gulag Archipelago. Read Vladimir Bukovsky's book, about which I spoke with him just a few weeks ago, and I was the last person to interview him before he died, the famous Soviet dissident. Read some of that stuff, but you're going to learn a lot, and you might appreciate the great nation, the great constitutional republic that was handed down to your generation, appreciate it, and work to save it. Pray for these guys. They really need the Lord. Hey, thanks for being with us on Janet Mefford today. We'll see you next time. 